0: Section 5 of Life of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3. Raleigh at Court, Part 2. Elizabeth really seems to have been very near marrying Anjou at one time, but though she professed to be very much in love with him, she can have been actuated only by motives of policy, by a hope that this marriage would strengthen her position against Spain. Anjou was twenty years younger than she. In person he was repulsive, of puny stature, with a face deeply marked by the smallpox and a swollen and distorted nose. His character was thoroughly despicable. Though ambitious, he was mean and cowardly. Though a bigot, he had no deep convictions and played an utterly ignoble part in history. Yet Elizabeth coquetted with him and made love with him as though he had really touched her heart. He was treated with every mark of honor and of public respect. At one moment, all seemed settled, and Elizabeth, in the presence of her court, after a great festival, drew a ring from her finger and placed it on his— The opponents of the marriage were filled with alarm, but time passed on and nothing more was done. The Duke of Anjou spent three months in England in fruitless wooing and then had to go back to the Netherlands. Elizabeth showed great grief at his departure and herself went with him as far as Canterbury, where she parted with him with tears. She sent Leicester with a splendid following of nobles to accompany him to Antwerp. Sidney and Raleigh were among the number and fifteen vessels conveyed the Duke and his retinue to Vlessingen, where they were received by William the Silent, Prince of Orange, the great leader of the Revolt of the Netherlands. On the 17th of February the Duke made his solemn entry into Antwerp. Splendid festivities followed, in the midst of which no doubt the English nobles found time to discuss deep and serious questions of politics with the great Netherlanders, who were maintaining so noble a struggle for liberty. Raleigh stayed at Antwerp some time after his English companions had departed. He had a special mission from the Queen to the Prince of Orange, and the young man must have learnt much from his intercourse with this great statesman. There was never again any prospect of Elizabeth's marriage with the Duke of Anjou. He behaved treacherously to the Netherlands by trying to set aside their liberties and make himself absolute ruler." He had to retire with ignominy, after the failure of a perfidious attempt to seize Antwerp and died in Paris in 1584. After his return from the Netherlands, Raleigh continued to rise in Elizabeth's favor, but she did not give him what would most have pleased his ambition and active mind some office in the state, in which his restless energy might have found occupation. It was not Elizabeth's custom to reward her favourites with such offices. Probably her wise ministers, Burley and Walsingham, exerted their influence in preventing her from so doing. Besides, she seems always to have been guided by her own better judgment in the choice of her ministers, and to have allowed herself to be influenced only by the sense of their fitness for the post to which they were to be appointed. She rewarded her favourites. In a manner more harmful to the country at large than to her own administration or to the royal treasury. Her habit was to grant them monopolies, that is, the exclusive right of buying and selling some particular article of trade. She gave Raleigh licenses for the export of broadcloths in four several years, and in 1584 she granted him the farm of wines, that is, the sole right of granting licenses for the sale of wines throughout the kingdom. In 1585 he was appointed to the important office of Warden of the Stannaries. The Stannaries were the tin mining districts of Cornwall and Devon. The miners possessed special privileges. There were courts of the Stannaries, in which all their disputes were judged. The Warden had to watch over their interests and sanction the regulations under which the mines were worked. Raleigh seems to have devoted much care to the duties of this office, which was by no means an easy one. In 1587, Raleigh succeeded Hatton as captain of the Queen's Guard. This gave him an important position about the court, and kept him constantly near the Queen's person. He received no pay but his uniform, the office being considered a sufficient reward in itself. The guard was composed of men chosen for their good looks, and the handsome uniforms in which they were dressed made them contribute greatly to the brilliancy of a court festival. Gorgeous liveries were greatly in fashion in those days. Each nobleman was waited upon at court by a troop of serving men in his own livery. The tilts and tournaments, which were still the great amusement of the court, gave the nobles plenty of opportunity for displaying their taste and fancy in dress. The courtiers rivaled one another not only in feats of arms, but also in the magnificence of the dresses in which they clothed their followers. Shows and pageants of all kind were in great favor. Queen Elizabeth was fond of making progresses through the country from the house of one noble to another, and each taxed his invention to discover some new way of amusing the queen and her court. Elizabeth, though sparing in expenditure herself, liked her courtiers to be lavish in providing amusement for her. In 1583 she spent five days at Theobald's, Burley's country seat, when Raleigh accompanied her. She was so pleased with the entertainment she received that she told Burley his head and his purse could do anything. Her own love of magnificence showed itself very greatly in her dress. In 1600, her wardrobe consisted of 1,075 dresses and mantles of different kinds, without counting her coronation and parliamentary robes. Most of her dresses were embroidered all over with different devices, covered with jewels and adorned with lace of Venice, gold, and silver. She would appear first in a French dress, then in an Italian, changing the fashion of her dress every day. It was customary that the courtiers should make the queen presents every new year. These, as a rule, consisted of articles for her personal adornment, either jewels or articles of dress. We find even the gentlemen giving her embroidered silk petticoats, and still stranger, embroidered chemises of cambric. Lawns and cambrics had only been brought into England in this reign and became exceedingly fashionable for ruffs and cuffs. These ruffs were one of the most monstrous fashions of the time. They were worn by men and women alike, and were made of the finest lawn or cambric. They were at least a quarter of a yard deep, and were made to stick out stiffly round the neck, either by being starched or by being supported with an elaborate arrangement of wires. Stowe, a historian who lived at that time, says that he was held to be the greatest gallant or beau who had the deepest ruff And the longest rapier. At last, Queen Elizabeth had to place grave selected citizens at every gate to cut the ruffs and break the swords of all passengers if the former exceeded a yard, wanting a nail in depth, or the latter a full yard in length. The women distinguished themselves by their enormous farthingales, which were petticoats stuck out straight from their waists, supported on structures of wicker. To make the structure more firm, they stuffed it with rags, toe, wool, and hair, and the men stuffed out their breeches in the same way. The women covered their farthingales with jewels and ornaments. The ruffs also were ornamented with embroidery and sometimes with gold and silver lace. Stubbs, a stern Puritan moralist of those days, writes, The women seemed to be the smallest part of themselves, not natural women, but artificial women." not women of flesh and blood, but rather mommets, dolls, of rags and clouts, compact together. Both men and women painted their faces, and the beau wore jewels in their ears. Perfumes were exceedingly fashionable, and perfumed gloves were introduced from abroad and became a favorite article of luxury. Raleigh, like the other courtiers, was fond of fine clothes and liked to show off his handsome person to good advantage. He was tall with a well-shaped But not too slender figure. He had a fine broad forehead and thick dark hair. His complexion was clear and ruddy, but became bronzed in after years by his voyages and exposure to the sun and wind. He wore the pointed beard and moustache then fashionable. His eyebrows, which were much arched and very strongly marked, gave his face a slightly scornful expression, while his finely cut mouth showed decision and firmness. Several portraits of him still remain, in each of which he appears clothed with great magnificence and wearing many jewels for which he had a great fancy. A contemporary writer says that Raleigh's shoes were so bedecked with jewels that they were computed to be worth more than 6,600 gold pieces. In one of his portraits he wears a suit of silver armor and is richly adorned with diamonds, rubies, and pearls. Current gossip spoke much of his magnificence and of his favor with the Queen, but his haughty manners and his success at court did not tend to make him generally beloved. End of Section 5